and swinging is more fun. That what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus I could undress you in public, and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. Paul Harvey. Good day. things come from the enemy. I think it's important to remember that the truths that are proclaimed in the book of Ephesians, I think they become more and more clear and significant to us uh, the more we realize who God is and the more we realize who our enemy is. You know, last week when we got into this, this series and we began it, we said that, man, there are some amazing claims being made in this book. There are some amazing truths being proclaimed in this book. But again, they're more significant. They hit us deeper. They mean more when we understand who God is and we understand who our enemy is. Uh, last week, we were in Ephesians chapter one. We were introduced to the city of Ephesus, which is in modern day Turkey. We learned that the city is a port city and was a port city. It was an epicenter of idolatry um, in the Gentile world in Paul's time. Right. So you had the Jewish world and you had the Gentile world. And there was this place called Ephesus. All these people are coming in and out of the city. Tons of idolatry. The, the goddess uh, was referred to as Diana of the Ephesians. Multi-breasted fertility God. Sex God. Right? Money God. Wealth God. It was one of the seven wonders of the world was the temple of, uh, of Diana or Artemis, as you might look it up. Paul found when he went into the city on a mission trip, uh, a dozen disciples uh, who had heard about Jesus and they had become believers but he came into them and he said they needed to be further developed. They needed to be further taught. So Paul came into them, grabbed them as a unit, grabbed them as a group. And as he began to minister to them, he began to minister to Ephesus. He ministered to the surrounding cities, the surrounding regions with those 12 and the body of believers continued to grow. He did that for two years uh, in, the, in that area. And these are some of the things that he says that we can imagine he was preaching in Ephesus. I'm going to read it to you from Corinthians, Corinthians, but this is what the message he's preaching to the 12, the message he's preaching to the Ephesians. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.22 says, The Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks it's foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He goes into this area and he says, listen, the Jews want a sign. They want the heavens to open up, right? They want to see the rain stop like they saw in Elijah's day. And to the Greeks, they just want wisdom. They want to hear a new thing in a new way that sounds so smart. He says, but we didn't come into Ephesus, into this crazy place 
to teach those things or to show signs. We came to preach Christ crucified. That's the message. He says to, to one group, it's nothing. To the other, they think it's foolishness. Imagine him preaching that with 12 guys <laughs> in a city like this. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if, if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then also those who, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pity, pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and he's become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. This is his message. We preach Christ crucified, but not just crucified for our sins, risen from the dead. He says, if Christ doesn't rise, then why are we meeting in churches? He says, it's actually pitiful. If, if you have only hope in Jesus for this life to get a little bit better, he says, you're pitiful. Don't go to those churches. Don't waste your money. Don't waste your time and your efforts. Don't come to worship practices. Don't go on outreaches. It's pitiful. If, if Jesus is only good for you in this life, you're pitiful. That's Paul. That's the message he's preaching in this city with 12 random guys. Then he says this, 1 Corinthians 15, 32. Paul says, if in the manner of men I fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. He's constantly ringing that bell. He's constantly preaching that message. He says, look, if there's no resurrection, if we don't get a life after this, if we're not going to enter into eternity with Jesus, he says, eat, drink and be merry. Live how you want to live. Do what you want to do. Do it with whoever you want to do it with. He says, but don't be deceived. The message I'm preaching is something different than that. This life and the life to come. They tried to kill Paul in Ephesus. Pretty much everywhere he went, they tried to kill him because of the words that we get to read and comfort in here. Right. Like we just open this book and start reading it everywhere. He would go and he would say these things. They would try to kill him, yeah. take him out to the edge of the city and stone him. Several times they stoned him. They thought he was dead. They whipped him and they thought he was dead. Why? Because he's saying the things that we are reading this morning. Like I said, you we play that audio for you because it's supposed to be a wake up call to our senses. Same thing with the word of God, like wake up and realize what we're reading this morning. Somebody say amen. amen. This letter to the Ephesians, we're in Ephesians chapter two today. This letter to the Ephesians was written by Paul to that church that started with 12 that grew into a large church that eventually he'd send Timothy to pastor that church. He writes back a couple years later and he's in prison, but he can't stop thinking about them because he loves the church. Somebody say amen. amen. He loves them so much that while he's sitting in prison, he's not thinking about his condition. He's thinking, man, what about those 12? And what about Timothy? And what about all the people that believe there? I wonder what they're going through there in Ephesus right now. Let me write to them so I can remind them of the truth. And again, here we are this morning getting to read it. So I want to just recall two verses from Ephesians chapter one, and then we'll jump into Ephesians chapter two. The two that, that uh, stand out in many ways the most to me are Ephesians chapter one, verse 13 and 14. It says, in him you also trusted, speaking of Jesus, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Right. He says, how did you believe? 
The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You don't just wake up and, and have faith. You begin to hear the word of God. It sinks into your heart. Something comes alive inside of you and you believe. He says, after you heard the truth, after you heard the gospel, you believe. That's my testimony. I sat in church for six months getting high and, and living an unholy, unrighteous, physical life. All of that. And nothing was happening, in my opinion. And then all of a sudden, everything happened in one day. Not just because I decided I wanted to be faithful, because I kept hearing the word of God and you can't keep it out. If you're going to listen, please believe me, something's going to happen to you. But it says that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, which also means that the confirmation doesn't come from me or my testimony. The Spirit of God does something in your own life. So special, so powerful. So what I'm hoping that we can do this morning, we're going to look through uh, Ephesians chapter 2. And then at the end, I want to look at a story where we can see the chapter in action. Say in action. action. Right. So it's good to read this stuff, but we need to see it in action and we need to put it in action. Somebody say amen. Amen. This this Wednesday, when you're back in your life groups, remember that you'll be going over some of the things we talked about this morning. Take your notes, pray about it, think about it, and then put it into action in your own life. Last week, we talked about all that truth in action and looking like Jesus meeting somebody and telling them you're forgiven and then he tells them, go and sin no more, right? We read a whole chapter, but in Jesus, when he's meeting somebody, it's literally just a couple minutes of encountering them, saying something to them. And he says, hey, you're forgiven, go and sin no more. And then Paul takes that encounter and says, well, this is what was happening in their minds and in their hearts and in the spiritual realm. That's where we're at this morning. If you're with me, say amen. amen. All right, I just wanna make sure. I think some of us are still in shock from that video, <laughs> audio. <laughs> like deer in the headlights right now everybody's like oh god we're living in that right now (laughs) it's all right we're gonna make it everyone's like can we just rewind to like rj's testimony and berta's testimony the singing like it got too real in here right now i'm sorry it's for real it's not playtime we just have to remember that all right so ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says and you say me, me and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one. And he has broken down the middle wall of separation, 
having abolished in the flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles, the prophets and Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole body being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Ephesians chapter two. We thank you, Lord, that you would consider us enough and that you would know where we would be in this day and age and in this time that you would give us your word, Lord. You say time and time again that there were others who were dying for it, Lord, wanted to know the mysteries, wanted to understand what you had to say, wanted to know what it is that you wanted from them and what you had for them. And you've given that to us, Lord. We're so grateful this morning. I pray that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds, that our spirits would come alive, that your words would jump off of the page, Lord God. We came in here with situations. We came in here with circumstances, Lord God. Some of us came in walking in victory and some of us crawled in through emotions, Lord, of defeat. We ask, Lord, that you would just change us, Lord, that you would have your way, that you would intervene. You are the God who is alive, Lord. We are fully convinced that you are who you say you are, Lord. We know that Diana cannot reach, that she has no power, that she doesn't hear prayers, Lord, but we know that you do hear prayers. We know that you do have hands that reach, Lord. We know that you're the God that created us and you can intervene in our situations and circumstances, Lord. Speak through your word. Speak through me, Lord. Let my words be your words, Lord. Open the ears of your people, Lord. We love you. We need you. Have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. All right. So let's get into it. Chapter two, verse one says, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil that was talked about in that, that video. He's the prince of the power of the air. He used to be the lead worshiper in heaven. <laughs> he got cast down, but this dude has power. If you read through some of the scriptures, we could talk about it after service, but it says like, if you ever thought that you could approach him on your own and in your own power, you are mistaken. This dude is a beast. He's the prince of the power of the air. He still has abilities, right? It says this, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's how you walk the spirit who now, still now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, just as others. First thing I want to point out is it says we all once conducted ourselves that way. There's none of us who's better than the rest. If you think that you were kind of a good kid, kind of a good young adult, you were better than most, that's a lie from the pit of hell. We all were under the oppression of the prince of the power of the air. We all, some of us were oppressed by him and others were like, hey, can you use me? I want to do what you're doing. I'm down. There's not one of us. The Bible says that, that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. There's none righteous. So make that up in your mind right now to remind yourself that if you are saved now, that's who you used to be. You didn't come from a good family. 
You didn't come from this, this sinless group of people. You were a stone-cold sinner just like I was. I love that Paul reminds them of that, right? You're not good people. I'm sorry to tell you. I'm not a good person. We all once conducted ourselves under his sway. It says that we were by nature children of wrath. We were born that way. That's our nature. It's in us. Because of Adam and Eve, that sin is flowing through our blood. Many of us used to try to change, and we kept wondering, why can't I change? I've made up my mind. I read books, A Better Me in Two Weeks. <laughs> right? How to be successful. I bought the book, The Secret. It's a secret, right? Nobody knows. You just do these things. It's going to work for you. Why am I not changing? Because it's in your nature. There's only one way for that nature to be changed. And many of us know what it is, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Listen to this. This is Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. In him again, in Christ, in him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. By putting off the, the body of sins of the flesh, by, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. This is how your nature gets changed. It's not by your efforts. He says he did all this work. He said there was a list of requirements that were against you. It was contrary to you. Your nature is not this nature. And all these requirements have to be met. It says that he did all this work, right? He nailed it to the cross. I'm so grateful for him. What I also love about this is it says that it was past tense, right? Like in, in the beginning of Ephesians chapter two, the, the scripture said, he says, you, he made alive who were, who were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked. It's not talking about today. Somebody say amen. amen. He's saying this is a thing of the past. This is past tense. I just want you to know who you used to be and who you are now. I don't want you to feel condemned as if you're still that person, Paul is saying. We can talk about who we used to be without having to condemn ourselves as if that's who we still are. Amen. Right? We can tell our kids who we used to be age appropriately. Without, Because if you lie to your kids and say, I've always been this person, right? When they're going through stuff at this age, they're going to be thinking, well, then my parents, just they must have been superhuman because I'm not like that. I actually struggle. I actually have questions. I actually have doubts. And that's what Paul's trying to prevent here. Don't, don't walk around Ephesus like you've always been like this. <laughs> but we do have to come out of that system. We have to get off of that Ferris wheel, right? The picture God gave me is this Ferris wheel when we're walking in sin and we're under the power of the, pre the, the, the prince of the power of the air, right? You're on his Ferris wheel and he gets to control it. But we at some point have to get off. I remember being at Magic Mountain when I was a kid and they had this ride. Some of you might remember it. It's like this zero G. You just go in this little room and you stick to the wall, right? And the thing starts spinning. And I remember being sicker than I've ever been in my life and thinking to myself, if I make it off of this ride, I will never, ever, ever again, ever get on anything like this for the rest of my life. And that was one thing I held true to. <laughs> I never forgot the trauma of being on that ride. When I look back now at the years that I used to run with Satan, 
he made me so comfortable on such a horrific ride. When I was on that ride stuck to the wall, I knew how horrific it was. I was like, I can't believe I let my friends convince me to getting on this. But when we walk in what Satan wants us to walk in, it's just as horrific. It's actually worse, but we get comfortable. It's like you don't feel the G's. You don't feel how bad it is. You don't recognize that you're getting sick. Now that I'm off that ride, I never forget what it was like to be on it with Satan. And I don't allow other people to try to convince me, if they're still on it, that it's not that bad. It's always the people that are on the ride and love it. They're like, come on, it's great. No, it's not. (laughs) So this is what happens. As we begin to see the grace of God, right? He begins to open our eyes and he's like, let me show you the ride you're really on. Let me show you what's actually happening to you. Our eyes become open. He says, let me show you who's actually at the control right now. When you're screaming and having a good time and then you look over and there's Satan, this demon laughing and he's got the controls up, down, faster, slower. You thought it was ending. You know how they do that on some rides? Like you think it's over, you think you made it and they start it up again. God's opening your eyes. He's like, this is what's happening to you. Look. (laughs) This is what happens to us. Many of us begin to struggle for help because we want to get off. We start trying to get the the belt loose. We start throwing stuff at him. We start, whatever it takes, I got to get off of this ride. But you know what a lot of us actually do as well? We just close our eyes because we're paralyzed by fear. Paul is telling the Ephesians who are surrounded by this vibrant, there's a vibrant nightlife. There's a lot of sex going on. There's drugs, there's money, there's power. There's culture coming in from all over the world, right? It's the same thing like even on our social media right now. You can get culture from everywhere. You can see the whole world and you can have all this influence coming at you, right? Paul says, when you're, when you're on that ride and when you're looking at it, he says, it looks like it's ultra life. But Paul says, it's actually death. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. And that's the picture that he's painting for these, these believers. They're new believers in Ephesus. He says, Jesus made you alive, but you were once dead and you were a part of that system. And now you're finally able to see it for what it is. In Colossians 1.13, it says, Jesus has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. We come off of the roller coaster and we're conveyed by the power and love of God out of death and into real life, into true life. Right. I love that picture because in one You're stuck on this crazy Ferris wheel that you can't get off or this zero G ride where you're stuck to the walls and you're getting sicker and sicker. And then the other, it says that God takes you off of that and then he puts you onto a conveyor. The picture there is that he's going to do all the work. You just stay where he wants you to be and he's going to convey you into an understanding. You're on a conveyor belt. He's going to keep taking you to where you need to go. Station by station, step by step, service by service, prayer service by prayer service prayer moment where you're like, hey, I didn't even know I was standing in the prayer area. <laughs> that's what RJ said, right? Well, that's what happens when you're on a conveyor. You just end up where you're supposed to be. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, we're going to keep going. It says, but God, who's rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised up, raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. 
And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It says that he's rich in mercy. First thing it says there in that portion of scripture, God is rich in mercy. We sing a song that says mercy triumphs over justice or, uh, or over judgment. The idea is that we don't deserve it, but he's so merciful. If you don't know God is merciful, we talk about this a lot in the church. If somebody says, why should I go to church? Who is this Jesus? What does it mean to be saved? If mercy isn't one of the first things that you begin to talk about, we need to take a step back and, and pray and read our scriptures. You need to be able to say, listen, I was, on, I was on the Ferris wheel. I had a lot of chances to get off. I kept giving my ticket so I could stay on. I kept getting worse and worse, and I loved every minute of it. And instead of making me pay the price for all that, he said mercy. Because he's rich in mercy. That's all he wants to give us. Just want to be merciful. It says that we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift. Somebody say amen. amen. By grace, but through faith. The gift is available, but you, you grab a hold of it through faith. If you believe the gift is there, if you believe that it says what it says, if you believe he actually died for you, right? If there's that faith, you can receive the gift of grace. So you're saved by grace, but through faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So I hope that this is true, right? But there's substance. It's actually a physical piece of wood. There was blood stains. <laughs> he was a real person that not just uh, biblical men and women wrote about. Everybody in that day and age, historians wrote about him. There's a substance to him. There's a reality to him. It's the faith of that, that substance, right? substance of things hoped for but the evidence of what you can't see when i can't see it for myself i can see it in other people's lives many of us maybe came in here this morning and we were struggling and we're dealing with things and it's like man i haven't seen you for a long time god i haven't heard from you from a long time god and then a young lady gets up here and begins to say i was sitting right there and then i was at the beach and then he said this to me and then I asked him, is this for everybody else or just for me? And then when she said it, many of us maybe said, that was for me. I'm glad she heard. So when I read a scripture that says, faith is the substance of what I hope for. Like, it's, it's my hope, but it's got some, some substance to it. And there's evidence of what I can't see. I haven't seen God talking to me, but there's evidence that he's still talking. Yeah. So what does that mean? If Jesus is the substance of what we hope for, and he is providing the evidence of what we don't see. If he's actually faith, let's read that scripture again. You have been saved by grace and through faith. God gives us the grace and Jesus is the faith through which we receive it. What that means is you and I have no part in our salvation. Zero. Not a little bit. Not a quarter. Not half. Not the beginning versus the end or the end versus the beginning. Zero. Everybody say zero. Zero. We have no part in it. Even our initial faith is actually Jesus himself awakening us to the fact that we are on this ride. You didn't wake yourself up and say, you know what? I feel like I'm on a, a Ferris wheel of death. He woke you up and said, hey, look at where you are. This is how he writes it in John chapter 6 verse 44. Jesus says this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It says, even if you thought you wanted to go to church, or you thought you wanted to read your Bible, or you thought you wanted to give your life to him, that didn't happen on its own. The Father in heaven said, I want you to know who my son is. Imagine if we never forgot that we had nothing to do with it. None of us would be prideful. 
No matter who we are in the church or what role we have, nobody has a right to be prideful. Of course, in the church, there's roles, there's position, there's authority within the church. But we all come into the church the same way, by the grace of God and through the faith of Jesus Christ. Stone-cold sinners, dead in our trespasses, everybody that takes a step into the church for the very first time, we all step in the same way. Is this the line for sinners? Yeah, it's, everybody's in the same line, bro. Because <laughs> I was looking for the line for good people. It doesn't exist. That's just another Ferris wheel that the enemy is controlling that makes you think that you've entered into something you haven't. So why are we saved? What's the point in all that happening? It says that he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So why were you saved? Because he could use me. Because I have talent. Because I'm special. And because if he saved me, I was going to get all kinds of other people saved. That's actually not what it says. What it says is, he wants to show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He saved you and he saved me so he could show other people how kind he is. How graceful he is. And then look at this. He says, God raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. Say in Christ. in Christ. I love the picture that's painted here. It says that we've been chosen. We've been taken off of that Ferris wheel of death. We've been conveyed into the kingdom. And right now, as believers, we're sitting in the heavenly places in Christ. It means that if you're in Christ, you are where he is. If he's in the heavenly places, if he's seated at the right hand of the Father in Christ, we are there spiritually. The reason we have to meditate upon the word day and night like the, the Lord tells us to do is because just like the church in Ephesus, or in Ephesus, excuse me, we can still see and hear what's going on around us, right? Like, he says, read this. And then meditate upon it and think about it and pray about it because I'm telling you, you are seated in the heavenly places in Christ right now. But Ephesus is saying, Woo, look at the Ferris wheel. Woo, look at all the places we could go. Look at all the things we could do. Remember what it used to be like. Can you imagine having that kind of influence shouting at you all day, every day? And then you're supposed to remember that on Sunday at 11.15, pastor told me that I'm seated in the heavenly places in Christ if you're not going to think about it and meditate about it and go into life groups and talk about it more Paul's telling the, the believers in Ephesians uh, in Ephesus listen I've got to write you this letter because I know what it's like to live there it happens to us too please somebody say amen, amen. you get stuck on Facebook you go to one simple family function that shouldn't be a big deal, next thing you know, you're about to lose your salvation. <laughs> Some of us don't go all the way back, <laughs> right? Many of us have been there, keep it real. Some of us don't go all the way back, but you know what will happen if we don't meditate on the word and we don't think about these truths? Even if we don't go all the way back in, we'll come up to the fence of Ephesus and we'll put our hands on the fence and we'll be looking through like this. <laughs> Amen. God, I love you and I, I'm gonna talk about you on Sunday again. And as soon as Sunday service is over, Oh, I remember that part of the Ferris wheel. Oh, but I hate it. 
but but that part's okay. We're seated in the heavenly places right now. I'd rather be in, in the spot Berna was in on Friday night or the place that she was at the beach or the, or the place that RJ was in. Like those are, it looks like we're here on earth, but you're in the heavenly places. I'd rather be there than at the fence. Amen. Let's keep going. Ephesians 2, 8 says, for by grace, you've been saved through faith and not, not, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love how God works. I love how God teaches. And I love the progression that he has for us. It's a journey. You're being conveyed from one place to the next. There's a progression that he has for each and every one of us. So far this morning, we spent all this time learning that we're saved by grace. We're saved through faith. We didn't have nothing to do with it, so don't be proud. We all come in as sinners. It's all the work of Jesus. The Father opened your eyes. All that. You don't have to do anything. It's all about Jesus and what he's doing. And then he does this. God tells us that we were created for good works. Is that what it says in verse 10? We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. says that before we came to faith he prepared good works for you and i and we should begin to walk in them once we do come to faith i want you to think about somebody who would consider themselves your enemy i know that if you're here you don't have any enemies <laughs> so let's think about somebody else who thinks you're their enemy but we know that you're at home praying for them right so think about somebody right now who who thinks you're their enemy they don't like you if they saw you and nobody would know it, they would do something bad to you, full on enemies, right? Now imagine you're planning a wedding. Maybe it's your wedding. Maybe it's your daughter's wedding. Maybe it's a friend's wedding and you're the wedding planner. And this wedding's gonna take place next year. And on the schedule, you write that person who is your enemy as the person who's gonna give the opening toast and prayer over the wedding. This is what God's saying in Ephesians when he says that he has prepared good works for you to walk in. He's saying, you were my enemy. You said to hell with this God stuff and I'm staying on this Ferris wheel. But while that was happening, I was preparing good works for you to walk in. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to get off the Ferris wheel and then come in and say, we want to be with you. And then, okay, cool, I'm going to go die for you guys. While we were still sinners, he did all that. While we weren't going to do anything for him, he prepared good things for us later on down along the road of this conveyor. As Christians, it's so important that we don't put the cart before the horse when it comes to faith and works. Many of us begin to work before we realize and really digest and internalize the truth that we're saved by grace through faith. We get saved, we come to Jesus, we answer an altar call, and it's like, what can I do? How can I do it? I just, I feel like I need to do something. But we haven't really, really, really understood what it means to be saved by grace through faith. Then there's a lot of others who claim that the faith and the grace is so sufficient that it's somehow dishonoring God to do any work. Because if I do anything, that means I'm trying to earn something, right? So I should just not do anything because his grace is sufficient. 
James 2.26 says, The body without the spirit is dead, and faith without works is dead. James 2.22 says, Do you see that faith is working together with works, and by works faith is made perfect? In our church, we've been striving for people to come and receive, people to learn, take courses, before they begin to serve, because we want to get this part right. You know, I hope she doesn't mind me sharing, but... Bernard and I were talking, and Bernadine, excuse me, and she was saying, I would have never even come to a praying in the spirit service if I didn't have to go to complete one of my courses. Think about that for a second. I don't want to go. I don't understand praying in tongues, speaking in tongues. I don't believe I have the gift. It sounds weird. It sounds crazy to me, right? But because I've gone through four other courses and to complete my very last course which is ministry i have to go and volunteer in this ministry so here i am on this conveyor belt that took me somewhere i didn't want to go and because i'm there i've actually taken a step into learning about something i would not have learned about before and now i'm the one on the stage telling people even if you're like me and you don't know what's going on or how to do it or why you should do it all i knew is i needed to be in the presence of god so there i was where i was supposed to be I hope you're connecting the dots this morning with what I'm trying to tell you, right? Like, if you just start serving and doing stuff before you really understand what it means to be saved by grace, it's going to mess things up for you. You can ask some of the ministry leaders and, and uh, volunteers in our church where I've actually told them, you need to do a little bit less for a while. You're doing too much. You're working so hard that I, as your pastor, I'm concerned that you don't understand the grace part. I think we should be working because it makes it perfect, but not working before we really understand that we've already been saved by grace through faith. So please stop doing stuff. And then other people, I'm like, please start doing something because you are just as lazy as I've ever seen before. So God awakens our heart. We have this desire in most of us to do something, but I believe we can develop wrong theology and I believe that we can develop muscle memory that will supersede the truth that we read and hear preached. Let me tell you what that means, muscle memory. Think about that for a second. When you get so used to doing something, and this is how I do it, and when I do it, and where I do it, even when the pastor is preaching something else, and you're like, amen, but then you go back to muscle memory, and you start doing the opposite. Even when the theology that we should be believing in, and you understand it, your muscle memory is actually performing and acting in a different way, because that's how you've developed your faith and developed your Christianity. The preaching might say, give because you've been touched. But our muscle memory says, I'm giving so that God will touch me. You see that? The preaching might say, serve because you're part of the body. And the body needs you. But our muscle memory says, if I serve, I'll officially be part of the body. The preaching might say, faith without works is dead. But muscle memory says, my works will build my faith. What you're actually doing and how we're actually performing, we put the cart before the horses sometimes. And then we wonder why things get all messed up as time goes on and why we get burnout and why we get angry with other Christians. Why we're so frustrated with how people behave and perform or don't perform or serve or don't serve. I know it's a lot, but I hope you guys are with me still. Ephesians 2.11 says, Therefore, because of all that, remember that you... Once Gentiles in the flesh, 
who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I need a couple volunteers this morning. Matter of fact, I need six. Somebody raise your hand. One, two, three, four, five, six. <laughs> That's you, Gilbert. <laughs> So come on up. I saw you. Can you guys grab those chairs right there? Devin, grab that chair. Grab one. Steve, I think you were a hand. Jerry, you were a hand. Grab those. I thought I had one more. Liz, you can come on this side. Grab one of these right up here, fellas. Come on up. Grab your chair. You guys can sit right over there. This is like one of those commercials where it says at the end, these are paid actors. These are not paid <laughs> actors. We did not try to work this out before service today so we'll see how it goes so look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11 and 12 it says remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world all right so we've got the Jews. Everybody give it up for the Jews. Yeah. And everybody say boo for the Gentiles. Boo, boo Gentiles. <laughs> so, so the Jews, it says that they've been circumcised, right? You guys remember that whole thing with Moses and, and that whole like, hey, if we're going to really be the people of God, we're going to get circumcised. Right? That's this group, the circumcised Jews. We are identified with Christ. And what else does it say about them? It says that they have the covenant of promise. That means they have a Bible. Here you go, Jews. The Old Testament, the Torah, right? Like they're chosen by God, called by God, circumcised to make sure the whole world knows that. And they have the covenants that nobody else has. These guys are on it. And these dang Gentiles. These Ephesians. These Americans <laughs> over here, what does it say about them? It says that they are without Christ. Verse 11 and 12 of Ephesians 2 says that they are without the covenant of promise. They have no word. They have nothing to stand on. They have no revelation from God telling them who they are or what they should do, right? They don't have any of that. It says that they have no hope. It says that they are um, without God and uncircumcised. These are the two groups that Ephesians is talking to us about this morning. Going on from verse uh, 13, it says, but now, this is where you were, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one. He's broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his own flesh that enmity. That is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. That's verse 13 through 18. So what that looks like, now everybody stand up. Let me hold that Torah. Bring your chairs together in the middle right here. 
and mix yourselves up. Go ahead, bring them together. Now let's mix it up. You go over here somewhere. You don't have to move the chairs. It's all right, guys. Just move yourselves. There you go. You used to be a Jew. You used to be a Gentile. You were a Jew. These are some Gentiles. All right. So the message that he brought to these two different groups was peace, right? Like all those Jews that used to be over here, look at Jews and Gentiles trying to get together already. Get <laughs> even the yoked up in here. Uh, so all the Jews that were over here, it doesn't say that he just went to those who were afar off, the Gentiles who were on this side. And he's like, let me tell you about peace. What the scripture says is he went to both groups and talked to them about peace. What does that mean? That even though one group might have thought they had peace, they didn't. He went to both groups. And first thing he told them about is peace. He says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. I give you a different kind of peace, right? Then he says that we've all been given access by one spirit to the father. What was the whole point of all this? Not just so we could look better or be a better church or be multicultural, be multi-ethnic. No, he's saying this is about access to the Father. This is about being able to connect with the one who created you. This is about being able to actually hear from him. Because you won't hear from him if you don't have the peace that only I can provide. This is what he's teaching these groups of people. This is what Paul is describing to the church in Ephesus. He says everybody needs to be saved. Right? The circumcised needed to realize that the covenants that they had, remember remember when Liz had the covenants? The, the Jews would look at people like Christians often look at people and say, look what we have. Look what we got. We're so much better than you. And then when Jesus came, you know what he said? He said, look, I gave you that so you could realize that you need help. Not so you could think you're better than anybody. If you read it the way you're supposed to read it, every time you close it, the first word that should come out of your mouth is help. Lord, help me. There's no chance. So that's what he tells the Jews. And he tells the uncircumcised, he says, let me tell you about the one true God. You didn't get a book. You didn't have all that stuff. But let me tell you who he is. And let me tell you about a new covenant that he's establishing with everybody. Hebrews 8.8 8 says, finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Hebrews 9.15 says, For this reason, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant. And those who are called, or excuse me, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. That because of the cross, right, he's giving us this new opportunity, this new covenant in his blood to have something we would not have had before. You guys are almost done. Read verse 19 now, guys. We're getting close. Now, therefore... You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. No longer strangers or foreigners, but fellow citizens. So who's a Jew? Who's a Gentile? Who came from far off? Who came from close? You're no longer any of that. Put that hand down, Devin. You ain't no Jew. And you ain't no Gentile. You're a citizen of the household of God now. You see, like, when we, when we put them on the stage and we put them on different sides and there's three on each side and we bring them together, we mix them up, it's literally what God is saying is actually happening in the world. That there's no longer two groups of people, there's only one. Those who are citizens of heaven and of the household of God. 
This is what's happening. This is what Paul is telling the Ephesians. Hey, I don't know what it looks like to you, but this is what's happening, is what he says. He says he's building them and they're growing them into a holy temple and that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Why don't you guys all stand one more time? Just put your chairs to the side. Amen. Yeah, slide them over a little bit further off like that, like they did on this side. These are the real citizens. Amen. Now I just want you guys to grab hands and make a circle. Amen. Now check this out. If these body of believers, right, they've come together now, it's one group. We're not looking at what, what makes them different. We're looking at what makes them the same, which is what God has done in their lives, what he's provided for them, right? They can stay in unison, right? If they say Jesus is going to be the center of this thing. Somebody say amen. amen. So Jesus at the center, and he's why we're holding hands, and he's what's united us together. But, but watch this. If, if we all just slide that way a little bit in our circle. Wrong way, Jerry. Let's slide that way. There we go. All right? Okay. So, so, so their relationship hasn't changed. They're still connected and they're still the same distance apart. They still feel like, man, we are the church and we are doing it the way it should be done. Everybody say amen. amen. But Jesus is no longer at the center. Isn't he like right here now? Mm. Now, now let's, stay, let's stay the church. Let's slide this way. We're doing it together and we're united and God is moving. Let's, let's keep coming. Let's keep coming. Right? God is blessing us. Stop there. But, but isn't Jesus over here now? Like we still look like the church. We still feel like we're connected. We feel still like we're in the will of God, but Jesus is no longer at the center of who we are and what we're doing. That's why Jesus says, he doesn't say, let's circle up and hold hands and sing Kumbaya. What Ephesians chapter two says is that he's the what? The chief cornerstone, right? So let's do this again. You guys just stand back back here. Let go of your hands. It's all right. I know you love each other. So let's say that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Corner. Say amen. amen. He's here. He's in the corner, right? Then what we're going to do is, Devin, come here. Now you're going to grab my hand and go this way, right? And then let's do, David, look at you, ready, right? No, no, just you. You're going to, we're going to, let's just do it side by side. I'll be the chief cornerstone. And then everybody else, get, get next to somebody, shoulder to shoulder. There you go. Perfect. Let's go here, this. You stay here. That's you right there. Oh, this, no, oh, you're perfect. Oh. You stay there. The cornerstone is there. You can't see him, but he's the evidence of things unseen. He's still there. All right. And you just stay right there. All right. So now, if, if Jesus is the, is the chief cornerstone, and this is the way that he described how he's building his church, right? This is how we know that we're still aligned properly. If this is staying straight, we know we're aligned with the, the chief cornerstone. If this is staying straight, we know that we're aligned with the chief cornerstone. And how do we keep building the church of God? It's like this. The distance that Liz is from Devon is this much. We know that the distance between Gilbert and the next person should be the same distance because we're still aligned. Even over here in no man's land, we're still aligned by the chief cornerstone. This is how he says he's building his church. And what that means is when the next person is this far off, I, I could have sworn somebody shared a testimony today and they said that God said, I need to be realigned. Yeah. I heard her. I was here and she said, the word that the Lord had for me to share with the church today is about realignment. What that means is I'm too far. 
I may think that it's about me and Gilbert, but it's not about me and Gilbert. It's about the chief cornerstone who has aligned everything. So I need to step into where I need to be regardless of how I feel about that. And Paul is telling the church in Ephesus that this is how it has to be. Give these guys a hand. They can have a seat. Amen. Be warned if you give a testimony and it lines up with the word of God, I'm going to preach about you all morning. How we say that, she said, she said, I don't just tell that person, you're too far away. You know you're a sinner. You're not lined up with the chief cornerstone. Why are you down on the first step? What she said is, hey, how can I help you fix your crown? Hey, I see, I see that, you're, that you're a little bit off. I love you. And what I'm actually trying to do is get you to come closer to me and in alignment with the chief cornerstone. And then the last verse of our scripture today says, Ephesians 2.22, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. God says this to, to the Ephesians and he says it to us. He says, listen, it's not just about the church that God is building, right? It's not just about all these pieces that fit together to make one body and one church. He says, you as an individual are actually supposed to be a dwelling place for the spirit of God. The church is being built, but individual members of the church are also being built this way. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? You are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So check this out. He's, he's in us in the sense of in the church, the whole body of believers all over the world because he's the chief cornerstone, right? He's walking amongst us because it's his church, but he also says, I will dwell in them. So every individual brick has the presence of the Holy Spirit of God within it. And he says, what does that have to do with idols? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? What are you doing still hanging out in Ephesus? What are you doing still hanging out with the goddess Diana? Or whatever goddess you want to put in there, whatever idol you want to put in there. So like I told you before, I want to close with this truth in action. There's a lot of truth there in Ephesians after uh, chapter 2, if you ask me. But to me, I love truth in action. What does this look like in the real world? What does this look like in the life of one particular Ephesian or one particular uh, American? What does it look like in action? This is John chapter 8 from verse 1. It says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them, just like many of us came to church this morning, right? Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. We found her in the bed with this man this morning, right now. And Moses in the law, he commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say, Jesus? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear them. He's teaching in the church, guys. He's just in the church having a regular Sunday service. 
And these people come busting in. Look at this. Look at what she did. Look at how she's acting. Moses says we should kill her. What do you think? He just ignores him. You know why? Because he's like, I'm teaching something. There's a bunch of people on a conveyor this morning. And there's something I need to teach them. He ignores them as if he doesn't even hear them. That's how he starts, right? He wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. This is a big deal. This is a big deal in her life. This is a big deal for the church and all the drama that's going on in any church. Jesus addresses it in one sentence real quick and he gets back to his message. Verse 9, then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, they went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. A moment, an encounter, but chapters and chapters of what's actually happening in that encounter. I don't even want to talk about what's happening with the hearers. The oldest go out first because they start going through their sins and it doesn't take them long to realize I got to get out of here. I can't throw any rocks. The younger who think that they're better and that they're still pretty good. They're the last ones to leave and they're like, no, nah, but I can't throw anything at her either. And they leave. Jesus is doing what he's supposed to be doing, preaching and teaching. But he has this encounter with this woman. Ephesians chapter 2 says, This woman was dead in her trespasses and sins, but Jesus in this moment made her alive. That's what we studied this moment, right? I mean, this morning. We all are dead in our trespasses and sins, but in him we've been made alive. I see that in her life. She came in dead. She was dragged in dead. Half naked in the, in the moment of adultery full-on dead and what happens when she leaves this moment with Jesus she's been made alive that's what Paul tells the Ephesians is happening in everybody's lives that comes to him in Ephesians chapter 2 it says that he's rich in mercy how many of you would say that in this woman's life Jesus was rich in mercy yes. he could have taken this as an opportunity to talk about all of her business he could have taken this as an opportunity to put her out there in front of everybody to continue to teach his lesson. But what did he do? He was so merciful to her. So caring for her, even in her sin, even in her adultery, he loved her. She was saved by grace through faith and not by works or merit on her behalf. Was she saved because, because she came and she said, uh, but I'm going to change. Oh, they didn't tell you this, but, but I've been giving. Even though I've been living like this, I've been going to the church and I've been giving. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. I'm, I'm going to save you then. It had nothing to do with her works. Nothing to do with her merit. Nothing to do with her past of good things. She was saved just because of the grace that Jesus has for her. That's what Ephesians 2 is teaching us today. Why? It says that in the ages to come, God's goodness would be seen through the kindness that he shows in Christ. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 says. We live in the age to come. When this happened, there was a day in the future, and it's called today. 
And how many of us can see the kindness of Jesus? See the kindness of God in this woman's life? It's all true. It also says that she was without God and alienated from her community. She didn't feel when she walked away, I'm sure she didn't feel as if she had been embraced back into the community and now that she was, she was no longer alienated. But you know what actually happened in that moment when she, when she left out of the temple by herself? She, she became part of that family that you saw up here. In that moment, she couldn't see them yet. She didn't understand that they were out there, but there was a bunch of family members she had in heaven and there were a bunch of family members that were still on earth and there would be new family members in the city of Brea in 2019 that she immediately became part of that family. She was no longer alienated. She was no longer circumcised or uncircumcised. She was brought in as a citizen of the kingdom of God. So when you saw our six people get up here and hold hands, could you picture that circle a little bit bigger? Could you picture where she is in the hand holding line? She's my sister. She's your sister. She's not some lady in some story. She's in the chain of people who are holding hands. And one day we're going to be together with her. We sit in the heavenly places in Christ. We just need to continue to realign ourselves with Jesus. He's the chief cornerstone. He's what we do, why we do it, why we're here, why we listen, why we pray, why we read. It's because of who he is. Stand with me this morning. Worship team, can you come? Are there any here this morning who are tired of the devil's Ferris wheel? Like, you know you're still on it. You might feel comfortable. You might feel like it's okay. You might feel like it's not that big of a deal. But the bottom line is you're still dead in your trespasses. I shared this morning that we were all there. And the only way to come to salvation is to get off of that. Jesus will stop that and pull you off of it and put you onto his conveyor. But you still have to make that decision. Make that acknowledgement. Understand where you are and want to get off. There's no other way off but to call on the name of Jesus. He has power and authority over the devil. If that's you this morning, would you identify yourself? Why don't we all bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment? It's not about other people. Nobody's looking around. Nobody's looking at you to see if you're going to raise your hand. But if you want to be saved, you know you're not. Just like we all knew we weren't when we were not saved. But the invitation is just if you want to. Not to be made to, but if you want to. Would you raise your hand so we can see you? Not saved, but I want to be. Hallelujah, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. For the rest of us, it's going to be a real simple altar call this morning. Is that we're going to open the altars for prayer. For anything. If it's something that ministered to you from the word this morning. If it's something you've been going through and you just feel like you want prayer, you need prayer. You feel like the Lord is calling you or conveying you forward. I would ask you not to jump off of that conveyor, but just allow him to lead you up to the altar that you can pray and that you can be prayed for. We're also going to open up the uh, communion time. So I'm going to pray and then I'm going to open the altars. If you know that that's you, I'll ask that you'd come forward. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you again for this book of Ephesians. We thank you for what they were going through and the faith, Lord, 
that you put on display, Lord. Their lives were changed and they remained faithful, God. We believe the same thing can happen and is happening in us, happening here in this place, Lord, happening all around us in the region, happening all over the world, Lord. We thank you that we get to be a part of it. I ask that you would help us, Lord. Paint pictures for us. Show us the kingdom. Show us what it means for you to be the chief cornerstone. Show us what it is that we are a part of, what we've been offered to be a part of, Lord. Teach us and remind us, Lord, that we're saved by grace through faith, Lord. That it's not about our works, Lord. That it's all the work you're doing up front, Lord. And then beyond that, we begin to work. But not to earn anything. Help us this morning, Lord. You know where we are. You know where you want to take us. If we're standing at that fence looking back at our Ephesus, Lord, tear us away. Convey us back into that sweet spot that you have for us, Lord. Meet your people here at this altar. Minister to them, Lord. As we receive communion, remind us that that wall is only torn down. That wall of separation. Those requirements that were contrary to us. All of that is just broken in pieces and nailed to the cross because you were nailed to the cross. Your body was broken for us. Your blood was spilled for us, Lord. We will not forget that. We will not make light of it, Lord God. Keep it at the forefront of our minds this morning. We love you and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The altars are open. Communion is open. If you need prayer, you can come forward. Amen.